One day, I shall come back. Yes, I shall come back. Until then, there must be no regrets, no tears, no anxieties. Just go forward in all your beliefs and prove to me that I am not mistaken in mine. Mark, unlike the first Doctor who said to Susan one day he would come back and didn't, we have come back to you, our wonderful listeners. Welcome back, Mark. Welcome back, Rob. How are we? Very good. We've had a a bit of an extended break, haven't we? Yes, uh, family matters had gotten in the way. Uh, I had uh, some relatives come over from the UK and while watching the AFL Grand Final uh, turned around to me and said, is this rugby? I said, no, it's AFL. And why is Tom Jones on the telly? And they said, yeah, because we had to import the talent over. Yes, it's a sad feature of Australian uh, sporting finales that we have to import the talent to entertain the masses on the television because... As someone who's been to three AFL Grand Finals, no one on the ground, in the ground watching, gives a stuff about the pre-game <laughs> entertainment. Uh, but apparently it mesmerises the several million viewers across the country. So Tom Jones this year, and some floppy-haired pretty boy who I had no idea who it was, but that's not surprising because he's probably 25 years younger than me. So Ed Sheeran, I think it was. Oh, yes. No, I no, that still doesn't mean anything to me. Could have been worse. Could have been uh, what was uh, served up at the NRL. Had uh, Slash, formerly of Guns N' Roses, performing a guitar solo to a backing track of one of his brand new songs that only seven people knew. Um, that's, <laughs> that's remarkable. I mean, but what can you say? <laughs> What can you say about NRL, really? Rugby? Our our British listeners, there's a league apparently in the UK and some of our uh, pensionable rugby players from Queensland and New South Wales uh, go there and gather their retirement money from uh, rugby UK rugby clubs. Yeah, so they they, they would know about that. But yeah, it's a finale of football, uh, of two of the football codes here in Australia before the the real football starts up or uh, with soccer, as we call it down here. So... But uh, none of that... Uh, well, I actually went up and visited my family in anticipation of my brother having his uh, having had his firstborn child actually born. But uh, whilst that was being delayed, I managed to uh, take up my intermittent alcoholism and drink my father's drink, uh, liquor cabinet dry. Some of you may have seen our tweets where oh, I yes. mentioned that uh, the bourbon ran out in the morning and I started on the Baileys in the afternoon. But um, that was almost true. Almost true. The grand final tweets. We'll be repeating that next year, won't we, Rob? <laughs> Look, it seemed like a good idea at the time, and I think did actually get a few responses. So. Go Hawks! Apart from the AFL and the NRL being played, Rob, uh, Series Eight is halfway through. It's remarkable how quickly it all comes and goes, isn't it? It's unbelievable. Yeah. So, uh, look, we don't review Series Eight. Plenty of other podcasts are, but uh, we might give a quick rapid-fire discussion on our thoughts on the on on the story so far. How about that? Well, as an aside, I think fandom is rapidly approaching the event horizon of. Uh, podcast reviews of Doctor Who uh, <laughs> anymore and I, I fear that the entirety of fandom will slide <laughs> into a black hole and emerge uh, you know wide-eyed and blinking in another universe where reviews aren't allowed what do you think about series eight so far Rob uh, well I thought that deep breath was he's uh, probably a little bit overrated but uh, overall I'm really 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 enjoying it and I think the reason I'm enjoying it so much is two things uh, they've actually given General Louise Coleman a character to act with for you know in terms of clara being you know more than merely a cipher and capaldi is 
or is it Capaldi? I've heard that it's actually pronounced Capaldi, so I've been mispronouncing it for months. But uh, Peter Capaldi uh, is absolutely mesmerising in the role. It's I, I people have probably gotten sick and tired of me going on about I'd I'd like uh, uh, a sort of a darker portrayal, I suppose, or even sort of slightly darker stories. And Capaldi is uh, bringing that along in spades. He's he's very much the anti-hero, I suppose you would say. He's I mean his attitude to those around him is distinctly unfriendly and dismissive uh, at times and um, we saw that a great deal of that in Kill the Moon uh, over the weekend but mm. I, I think uh, with it, whatever material Capaldi's got uh, you know had to work with either sort of the lighter stuff in say Robot of Sherwood or some of the darker stuff in Listen which I think uh, personally I think was Moffat's best most cohesive most entertaining script for a number of years Mm. Capaldi constantly hits it out of the park. I I have not heard a bad word on forums or amongst discussions about his performance. And even though the audience appreciation numbers are a little bit lower and the overnights are lower, but that's to do more with the take-up of different technology and, and viewing habits. I, th- I think that so far, Series 8 has been a really strong and cohesive run of episodes. And uh, while I think... In, in certain elements, Killer Moon was, you know, it was half baked uh, along, you know, the, the, with the storyline and that sort of thing, and and the science was disgraceful, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> Though, I mean, you know, I suppose you can't argue with a show about a time traveling police box, but you know, the overall science was rubbish. Uh, even even Killer Moon was uh, was really entertaining. What what did you what have you thought? To answer your question, I'm I'm really concerned about my feelings towards series eight because I'm actually really enjoying it. Really. Really? Like you, I'm thoroughly enjoying Capaldi in the role. You know, I've heard a few people saying, oh, it's just like Colin Baker. And... But is Colin Baker done right? Has he strangled Clara? No. I know everybody's been going on he's rude and Pertwee was condescending to Joe and civil servants. Hartnell, in the stories I've been listening to uh, in preparation for the podcast, has been really rude. But I'm thoroughly enjoying Capaldi. I like the fact that I don't know what he's going to do next. The whole thing at the, uh, at the end of Kill the Moon where he just get, goes off and leaves Clara Courtney and the astronaut, who I can't remember her name, to basically make a decision. You never get Matt Smith or David Tennant doing that, maybe Eccleston. I can't praise Capaldi enough. And the stories have really maintained my interest. The robots of Tara, it said what it was going to do it was a fun romp in the style of season 16. Yep, absolutely. Ben Miller's Sheriff of Nottingham. Easily place him in season 16. Listen was brilliant. And I actually don't go back and watch many new series episodes twice. And that is one I actually did watch twice. I very, very, very rarely go back and, and, and watch new series. If I do, I'm, I'm reviewing it uh, for Impulse Gamer, uh, like I did with, uh, say, Deep Breath. But... With Listen, I've watched that three, maybe four times, and each time uh, I find it as riveting and as just interesting uh, as, as the previous times. Mm. I've, I find Capaldi in his performance, he's, he's very watchable. He's, he's, he, has, he has, you know, like Troughton, he's got that lined-seamed face, and he's always, even, though when, even when he's still, you know, we, 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 we became used to Tennant, and Smith being very active, active actors in the role, so they'd be they'd be constantly moving, and the and the episodes would would move at that similar pace. Mm. With with Capaldi, I find that he's often the most watchable thing on the screen, mm. whether he's still, whether he's speaking, whether he's gesturing, he is just completely watchable. And I've all, I'm also finding that whereas I 
didn't find any particular connection between uh, Clara and the uh, and the Matt Smith doctor. Thank you, Moffat, for stuffing up the counting again. <laughs> um, whereas I didn't find too much of a connection between the two of them, I'm finding that Coleman and Capaldi are really working off each other uh, in, in interesting ways. And that because the the, the Capaldi doctor is, is a much more abrasive figure, hmm. Clara is having to essentially fight to be heard fight to have some sort of influence on the proceedings around her mm. and you saw in say listen where you know the doctor stood up to her and ordered her back into the TARDIS and at the end of end of listen she stood up to the doctor and ordered him back into the TARDIS and there's a more interesting dynamic between the two than I have seen in any new series doctor uh, companion relationship since say Donna and the 10th doctor uh, but I find this has taken that to a whole new level and yeah. even if the stories, I mean, my hope was at the beginning of the series that, you know, Capaldi, we all knew that Capaldi would bring uh, a certain style to his performance. And we're getting that. There's no doubt about that. And I hope that the stories themselves would elevate, would be elevated to match that. Now, while I think that overall uh, the series eight is, you know, more cohesive and it's a, the, the stories have sort of are, 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 have risen to match that, match Capaldi, they haven't, except for, say, listen gone up and, and, and are sort of on an equal basis. But that's not to say that they're, they're, they're not good. As I said before, I think they've been mainly very good, even though I think Deep Breath, in hindsight, is a particularly flaccid script and needed a much more rigorous editing. But uh, but because they'd gone with that we're going to release it at the cinema, we're going to give people a cinematic movie experience and the running mm. time has to match that, I suppose. We, we were sort of forced to live with what we got. But even though, uh, you know, there are comments that, that, that Capaldi is, is much more abrasive, much more aggressive, much more dismissive, much more arrogant, much more acerbic than any, any other previous uh, incarnation we've seen. There's something that there's a something almost lovable about him in his in his anger in his in his dismissiveness, and there are occasionally hints of warmth. You see, I mean, I saw in the caretaker where you know he's very angry towards Danny, and some of that is to do with this suddenly inexplicable dislike of soldiers, which I'm sure will culminate towards the end of the season or the series. There's no doubting that that's something that's going to feed in later on. But he's angry, I think, because. He cares for Clara, and he and he's and he's hoping that this new person in her life, you know, is treating, you know, has affection for her, and I suppose a little bit of jealousy that you know she's being drawn out of the Doctor's orbit into into Danny's. Mm. So there there are, there are aspects there, and up until the point where Clara lost her crap at the end of Kill the Moon, and in my book anyway, inexplicably got angry at the Doctor and stormed out. I thought that the relationship there was was warming up nicely. I. Do do people not like being given you know responsibility to make their own choices, uh, and then because uh, I don't understand why Clara went berserk. She felt probably abandoned in the same way that she felt abandoned in the in Deep Breath, but had a different reaction to it. Obviously, at the end, she obviously didn't feel comfortable with that responsibility. I would agree with humanity turning the lights off on the moon. I would have nuked the crap out of it. I would have chosen, I would have flicked the light switch off. But that says a lot about me, doesn't it, I suppose. So. I like my doctor with a bit of bite. As I said before, he's unpredictable and not in the sort of wacky way that Matt Smith was. I'm not having a go at Matt Smith because I, I loved him as a doctor. And I'm glad they'd cast an older actor in the role because I think if they'd cast a younger actor again, it would have been a mistake. 
because it would have been more of the same. Yeah, I agree. I do understand there's some there is some nervousness around some of his more uh, grumpy behaviour. Let's put it that way. And I have heard some other podcasts saying that, uh, you know, he's not the doctor. But he's at the start of a new regeneration life cycle. So who knows what the impact to him and his personality has been. Well, exactly. I mean, we should all, as, as audience... Uh, members, we should all embrace the change that Doctor Who represents. Mm. We should all look forward to this this new you know cycle of stories and see where they lead us. I mean, you know, you can live your life having chocolate paddle pops every day, but you know, you're gonna just you're going to get bored of the chocolate paddle pops, and it's the same with Doctors. I mean, would we really have wanted five or six years of, of David Tennant or five or six years of the, sort of the sort of stories that were served up with Matt Smith? Of course not. If you look at, say, Tom Baker, there's three distinct cycles of types of stories and types of portrayal there. Yes. Uh, you're, not going to, you're not going to get actors staying that long in, in the 21st century. But you, you don't want to have the same sort of thing served up week in, week out. And I think that uh, we've been offered a radical change in the way the, 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 the lead you know, character is portrayed and the dynamic between him and his uh, travelling companion and the sort of stories that we're getting. And, I mean, I'm looking forward to the end, you know, the last four or five... Well, it's the last four episodes of series... Four or five episodes of series uh, eight... Hmm. I, I don't know where we're going with the arc. Um, I, I've, I've not heard anyone who actually has any positive things to say about the arc. Um, but again, we've not been given enough to go on to, I suppose, you know, work out exactly where they're going. But I, I think the last two episodes are sort of arc related. Is that Would that be right? I think so. I've been keeping away from spoilers and press releases and and things like that so I imagine they'd have to have some sort of conclusion but I mean Kill the Moon didn't have any sort of throwback to the whole Missy thing the caretaker had a little bit at the end mm. and there was nothing in Time High so it hasn't sort of been shoveled down our throats like it was in Series 6 no no it's a surprise when it pops back up isn't it really yeah and it's not I suppose overly intrusive but because they, they tend to be sort of at the end of an episode like in Deep Breath or mm. uh in Kill the Moon. But um, have any thoughts, any brief thoughts on the other episodes since um, I think Into the Dalek, which was the last episode we, we discussed? Time Heist. Steve Thompson gets it right third time lucky, doesn't he? Yeah, I didn't mind Time Heist. I thought, I suppose it was derivative of other sort of heist type, you know, movies and shows. Yeah, Hustle in particular. For those of us who have spent m- much too long uh, reading the entrails of the Omni Rumor, some of what purported to be missing episode related uh, science uh, caught the eye. Some of the artifacts at the end of Time Heist in uh, in the uh, the bank manager's uh, office, for instance, uh, and a certain pair of initials on a on a calling card um, <laughs> indicated something to me. But I don't. We, that, that's a rabbit hole where we probably best not go down. And an address to a lockup somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Google Maps, everyone, apparently is your friend. So. And I loved at the end where the creatures, I thought it was uh, Mr. and Mrs. Sweetums from the Muppets are walking hand in hand at the end of Time Heist off, uh, off to yes. a near life together. It was lovely. Can, can I just say that there's not going to be much genetic diversity out of just one breeding pair of, uh, of creatures? No. They're, they're all going to have five heads by about the third generation. So. Hello, mother, uncle. Good luck with <laughs> Good luck with that. Good luck with that. What about um, the caretaker? I really enjoyed that. I mean, yeah. it sort of descended into uh, Sarah Jane Adventures uh, occasionally, but uh, I thought I mean Capaldi's comedy uh, 
timing was was really uh, entertaining. Mm. Um, I suppose we had to reach a point where Danny uh, met the Doctor, uh, so that was, I suppose, a welcome a welcome uh, confrontation. Uh, again, you know, I don't know why the Doctor suddenly doesn't like soldiers because he spent you know most of the seventies dealing with them. And wasn't he the War Doctor? But maybe that could be it. Maybe that could be it. But uh, yeah, no, I had a lot of fun with them. Um, with uh, with the caretaker though, did you find that the the policeman's hand falling to the ground, sort of with smoke coming off what was left of it, a bit a bit uh, extreme? It was a bit strange. Yes, I was yes. waiting for the Daily Mail to come out and say that the Doctor Who production team hated police officers and were gunning for them literally. I don't know about the caretaker. I thought it was okay, but the last couple of Gareth Roberts stories to me have had the same tone. Yes, exactly. Moffat gives him the idea and he goes away and write it. Hmm. But when you've read Gareth Roberts' books like the, um, was it The Well-Mannered War and, and things English like that. English Way of Death. Yeah, when he's let off the leash like that, he's got a great flourish. And I just would like him to try and do something different. You know, get out of the contemporary rom-com sort of stylings. I've seen it all before. The robot was pretty crap looking wasn't it really the most deadliest weapon in the universe is made out of commodore 64 leftovers i prefer my deadliest uh, robots in the world to be rest on related but um yeah exactly a man in a silver uh jumpsuit and a cod piece yes can't go wrong with a silver cod piece in my book so jumping in the air freddie mercury style <laughs> a bit like danny at the end where he does that trampoline jump what was that about <laughs> I, I don't know anyone who can do a st- uh, you know a running jump that goes straight up. No, I don't know anyone who can do that. Yeah, I found that really strange. But you know, I suppose yeah. it suited the tone. I mean, you wanted him to do something heroic, I suppose, and uh, he did. That was our non-review of season eight so far. We'd like to underline the words non-review. During our uh, month sabbatical, we've been busily building a new piece of machinery that we're calling the International Omni-Rumor Public Alert System. Every couple of podcasts will say, how are you feeling? And there's got four different uh, ratings. There is a low, which means uh, it's a release of missing episodes is not expected. And the alert sound for that is... (coughs) Now, the extreme means that uh, the release of missing episodes is imminent or has occurred and is denoted by and we've got two other ones we've got medium and high and we haven't thought about the sound effects for that yet but we just thought we'd concentrate on the low and the extreme so Rob mm-hmm. how are you feeling Omni Rimmer wise this week? Uh, I'm feeling very low about the Omni Rumor at the moment um, just low the release of missing episodes is not expected yes as we actually careen towards the first anniversary of their release uh, the enemy of the world and the web of fear uh i in in my little fan brain i was hoping that you know there would be an announcement to celebrate that uh anniversary but uh sadly it doesn't look like it's going to happen unless things change between now and say saturday i'd just like to say that i think that the high rating could be anticipatory painting (laughs) Uh, that would be my uh, uh, offer for a sound effect. Okay. Now, new series fans, please don't take this to heart. This is this is in uh, a light-hearted manner. Mark, if in order for the Omni Rumor to be true for you, would you be willing to sacrifice the new, new series? Can I sacrifice a few episodes? No, you're going to have to. You're basically going to have to sacrifice the new series in its entirety. Oh, Jesus! Oh, can I have some thinking music? I actually wouldn't sacrifice the new series. Heretic. 
Burn the Heretic. I spent my uh, train journey to work listening to four episodes of The Celestial Toymaker. And frankly, that can burn because it was terrible. I'd rather have a new series because the new series is continuing. And I think, to be honest, if we ever got some of the visuals back for some of the missing episodes, I think we'll be let down. Even though they'd be nice to have, I think sometimes it's better to look to the future than what it is to the past. What about you, Rob? What would you do? I mean, I'm probably going to guess what you would do, but would you sacrifice the new series in order to sit down and watch... uh, the Celestial Toy Maker again. Or even for the first time. Look, before Peter Capaldi strode onto our screens, I would have... I would have... Uh, in a, <laughs> Lit the match yourself. It's actually... It's it's a cruel question. It's it's a cruel and unnecessary question. So I regret actually asking it. We made it. I regret asking it. But, um, oh God. It, I mean, just imagine it. The, who, imagine that there was a pile of film cans and you knew them to contain all 97 missing episodes. And there was another bunch of, I suppose, digital videotapes. I mean, I'm not quite sure how they... Hard drives and, uh, holding MP4s. And and someone said to you, they're the only MP4s of the new series in existence. And they were holding a can of petrol and a lighter. Which of these would you like to keep? Um, uh, it's a cruel question. I probably shouldn't have asked it. Uh, before Capaldi, I would have given it up just to, for the chance to see Power and Evil and uh, Fury... And uh, and you know Dalek's master plan and and even something like the savages I would have given up you know I would have given them all up just to have a, have a chance to look at that but uh, it's it's I'm a I'm a I'm sorry <laughs> I, th- I think we should avert our eyes from this car crash of a of a topic and move to our main topic tonight I feel like Tom Baker do I have the right I've got the two wires and I just don't know what to do and I can hear Ian Levine and all these guys in the background saying, no, not again. Tonight's main topic is a discussion of the Hartnell era, the original anti-hero, the first Doctor. And we ask, has his era and interpretation influenced the latest incarnation of the Time Lord? Now, a few weeks ago, we asked for our listeners to send in their uh, their thoughts and opinions of the Hartnell era. We had two responses, Rob. Well, that's more than most of our topic requests uh, elicit. Absolutely. We had a tweet first from uh, a listener, Bernard JKD. Do you want to read out what Bernard uh, said, Rob? Bernard tweets, Nothing new has been done since. The Fountain of Doctor Who in all its variation, or a hackneyed 1990s scripted VHS ripoff. William Hartnell is the best of the 1960s Doctors, no question asked. So thank you for that. Uh, those thoughts there, Bernard. We've also received our first piece of audio feedback from our long-time contributor, Dave from Melbourne. So take it away, Dave. G'day, Mark and Rob. After seeing that your next episode was going to be on the Hartnell era, I just had to get in touch because this is my absolute favourite era of the show. This is a time in television driven by writing and by character. With no real special effects to speak of, stories had to be carried by the words, and the Hartnell era delivers intelligent stories that assume an intelligent audience, with often beautiful use of language. It took time to tell stories and to grow the characters. The era contains, in my view, some of the best Dalek stories ever, and it also contains some of the most creative stories ever. This is not to say that the stories were terrible to look at. The model work, sets and design in the Daleks is incredible, and the creation of the Aztec and Roman worlds 
absolutely amazing, especially for the time. As for Hartnell himself, well, whilst there are other Doctors more popular, unique or outlandish, I would argue that none have the strength of performance, ability to recite a moving soliloquy, or the comic timing that William Hartnell had. Trout and Equiston are perhaps the only challengers. Is there a story darker and more dramatic than Dalek Invasion of Earth? Is there a story more epic or exquisitely written than Marco Polo? Is there a better character drama in Who than The Rescue? Is there a more Shakespearean tragedy than The Aztecs or The Massacre? Is there a wittier story than The Romans or The Mythmakers? A more inventive story than The Keys of Marinus or The Ark? or more groundbreaking stories than the Daleks' master plan or the time meddler. To all of these, I say no. Wonderful stories, memorable, well-rounded companions, and the original Doctor. This is the era that has truly stood the test of time. Thanks very much, Dave. Do we think that the Hartnell era has stood the test of time? I think the answer to that, Mark, is its themes and the characterisation and the acting from Hartnell has stood the test of time. Um, I, I think that we see elements of Hartnell throughout, you know, I mean, actors look look for inspiration everywhere. And you, you, we, we know that uh, a lot of the actors who played the Doctor sort of started off, at least, the, the, you know, from the classic series, started off watching watching Hartnell. We know that Colin Baker certainly did so. He said that himself. And Davison as well. And Davison as well. And I, I think there's elements of, of Hartnell's portrayal in, in all of them. I mean, the sort of... I mean, looking back at the Hartnell era, we... we we came. I mean, the very first story um, shows a man who is completely at odds with Ian and Barbara uh, for, for, for much of those first two or three stories. I mean, he kid- he effectively kidnaps them um, and takes them away from their home. Mm-hmm. He tricks them into uh, entering the Dalek city, and then he basically uh, accuses them of sabotage. Sabotage in the edge of destruction. And it's only when he, when basically Barbara strips you know, the skin off him mm. uh, with, a, with, a, with a tirade that Clara, uh, similar to what Clara did in, in Kill the Moon, mm. that um, the first Doctor uh, realises the error of his ways, that he, he can't be a, a sort of a lone wolf, you know, floating above everyone else, that he has to get down and, and, uh, and mix it up with, with the people that he's, he's traveling with. Mm. But there's that alienness and there's that sort of contempt for the, the lesser minds that uh, he's been forced to deal with that you sort of see a little bit, uh, well, not a little bit, you see a lot of it today with, uh, with, with Capaldi's portrayal. Absolutely. And whereas that, over the course of Hartnell's three years in the role, changed, it evolved, it became, his portrayal became softer i mean there was definitely a caring attitude to susan and to vicky i mean vicky is very much a, a susan surrogate isn't she yeah and the doctor takes on this orphan um i think she's an orphan isn't she yes she um, is yes vicky and, and and takes her under his wing and uh you know in in his heart she replaces you know she replaces susan in, in his in his affections mm. And it's interesting to see that 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 evolution. I, we we sort of have this impression of the the '60s that it was a desperate attempt to get anything on the television screens, but there, I think a lot of a lot of the time there was certainly, especially amongst the first, you know, uh, under Verity Lambert, because that was the very first team, the very first travelling team, and the very first production team. They 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 there was a concerted effort to shape what we saw. In terms of cohesive stories and and, and a developing a developing story involving these four people and template for the program as well, 
Well, very much yeah. so, very much so. The original remit of the series was to educate. Access to the Daleks is sort of a double-edged sword, really, wasn't it? Because, yes, it secured the show's future, uh, longer than the initial 13 episodes that original production run was supposed to run for, but it then sort of fixed the template to the show for an extent where sort of alien monsters get the ratings, especially in Series 2 where the Daleks came back at the beginning of the of the series, even though it was sort of filmed towards the end of the first series. But you had the Daleks back twice. You had the Dalek invasion of Earth and the, and the Trace. So in that initial first series, it was very fluid, wasn't it? It was very fluid, and I think that is the genius of the Hartnell era is that because it's new and fresh the audience would not have known what to expect unless they were a careful reader of the Radio Times they wouldn't have known what to expect and the sheer diversity of story types that are presented I don't think you find that diversity in later incarnations of the Doctor in later you know Doctors that's right I was sitting there writing out a list of, of, of things of, of story types I mean as you, as we said before we had um, we had historicals mm. we had the sort of the bug-eyed monster tropes um, we had pseudo historicals I mean uh, the, the pseudo historical and uh, with the time meddler is particularly groundbreaking and sort of set the tone for a number of very memorable stories later on the show's run you had the, the quest type story under the keys of Marinus uh, comedy um, with, with stories like the gunfighters or the Romans and fantasy with a celestial toy maker as well based under siege trope which became a staple uh, of the Troughton era, mm. and which the Troughton era is is is, is associated with uh, to a great extent, uh, saw its genesis in the Hartnell era. So, I mean, you know, they obviously needed to churn through stories because they're on television fifty weeks of the year. Mm. But there's a lot to um, there's a lot of diversity, diverse stories, diverse storytelling you know, ways of, of telling the story. It's interesting what you say about different types of storytelling. I just finished listening to Marco Polo today. And in my notes, I've written down that the style of that story is very much like the BBC did the classic series on the Sunday afternoon. It's very much mm-hmm. sort of in that sort of format where the Reign of Terror then switches to a more a 1950s style production like Ivanhoe. The rules about the series and how it was supposed to work wasn't clearly defined. I mean, the idea that we have now that the Doctor rights wrongs and injustices and fights for the underdog, mm. I mean, that, that wasn't really something that the first Doctor presented, at least initially early on. I mean, he's more than happy to brain someone with a large rock in an unearthly child. That's right. I mean, and you can under... I mean, I suppose the adventuring life is really forced on the Doctor because, I mean, he's, obviously, he's clearly spent some time better down in, in London in the 1960s. And then to basically have to leave in a hurry uh, has forces him back into the wandering lifestyle. And then, of course, he's, he has to deal with Ian and Barbara and having them along as viewpoint characters for the audience. Well, if you've got viewpoint characters for the audience, your viewpoint characters actually have to do, have to do something. So they become involved in the you know the, the, the sort of the, the very crude political argument that's going on uh, amongst the uh, our caveman ancestors. And the Doctor is, is forced to be become involved. I mean, clearly he doesn't want to be involved and just wants to get back to the TARDIS and is prepared to be a murderer to achieve that. Yes. And and, and Ian's reaction is our reaction mm. where, you know, I mean, he's, he's he, I suppose, from memory, he's angry or horrified that the Doctor... I mean, he catches the Doctor in the act almost. Yes. If I remember that correctly. Um, and we, we we sort of get a sense... Of, well, we, we, you sort of question questioning also... Who is the lead actor? Who is the hero figure in, in, in this new series, this new strange series? Is it the Doctor who's the title character? Or is it uh, the very handsome, upright, physical uh, schoolteacher, Ian, who does all the heroic stuff? 
and there's a, there's an undeniable tension between those sort of two uh, extremes on the, on, the, on that spectrum. It sounds familiar, doesn't it? Well, very much so. Very much so. We had doubts on, did Capaldi's doctor actually kill the clockwork man? Well, I think the look that he gives the audience... <laughs> tells a tale so they've almost gone back to the future haven't they yeah i think it's undeniable we've had um you know touchy-feely doctor in uh, matt smith and we've had a sort of more human portrayal under tenant uh we've had more human portrayals under the last uh, two doctors i suppose yes so to, to get back to challenging the audience with the portrayal that is is not cuddly but sharp and spiky um is something that does mirror what was going on in the in the, in the very early 60s and even though um, Hartnell, Hartnell's portrayal softens uh, a touch, there's no denying that when he was <laughs> when when he was motivated, he could be as acerbic as 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 as, as Capaldi. I mean, the uh, I, I I watched uh, a couple of episodes of Dalek Master Plan, and um, he was tearing strips off, uh, you know, the time meddler for for for, for, for what he had gotten up to, mm. and there's no denying. That, uh, that the first doctor, you know, treated him with open contempt for his activities. I've wrote down some of the choice uh, phrases uh, Hartnell's doctor came up with while listening to some episodes. So he said things like, you shut up, brainless idiot, you poor, pathetic, stupid savage. Close your eyes and think of Capaldi and it's, 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 straight, it's the same sort of thing. So in preparation for the podcast, Mark, I've been, you know, thinking about the idea of having uh, the portrayal of the Doctor being anti-heroic. Can the show succeed or have longevity with a lead actor who portrays the Doctor as an anti-hero, whether classic series or new series? Yes, but when it's done right. The first Doctor's character was a cross between... Father Christmas and the Wizard of Oz. And Verity Lambert, I remember listening to an interview with her saying, and he was truly anti-establishment. He would question authority and he would do things in a way that he would see it's right, but not everybody else would see it was right. And I don't think back then in, in, in television, there were many characters like that. Well, Quatermass. You would have, Quatermass would be the... Yeah, but he's earthbound, isn't he? I mean, it's, you know, the Doctor travels in times and space. and. No, that's true. But I mean, you would, you would suggest that Quatermass was... Uh, had was at odds with the government you know what the government wanted to do he was at odds with what the military wanted to do uh, i mean so there, there is that example but i think you're right i mean the reason why something like that stands up is because it's uh stands up as being different is because i think the impression i have at least from 50s and, and early 60s television it's very respectful towards authority figures i think it's only with um uh, satirical tv shows like the frost report where you would have authority questioned on on, on british tv otherwise until sort of later in the 60s and, and, and society begins to open up and, and into the 70s where, you know, the, the, there's, there's all sorts of uh, questioning of authority and governmental figures. Mm. But before that, I, I think to see a lead actor who is old and you would expect them to sort of want to maintain uh, how society runs along, suddenly coming along and questioning, mm. you know, uh, you know the, the, an oppressive government or trying to topple an oppressive regime was something that was new and different and possibly captivating. That's right. I suppose also in the years gone by, the elderly were seen as the leaders in the community. Unfortunately, I think it's diminished. I mean, you know, you saw political figures like Churchill rising to prime ministership uh, when they were in their mid-60s. So it, there was that expectation that those in power would be older than you know most of the people that they ruled. And to see a character on television of a similar vintage questioning authority, questioning the way things were, you know, arriving on a planet and questioning the, the, the established order of things, 
would have been different and a little bit revolutionary. And we're seeing a lot of that, I suppose, with Capaldi. I mean, he's an older actor, granted a bit more vigorous uh, than Hartnell was, but um, he's not only is he, uh, you know, questioning authority in the show, but he's overturning our expectations, I think, especially new series fans, of what the Doctor can be and can be like. As we said before, you know, we, we had Tennant and Smith who were in the main soft and cuddly, but now we're seeing a Doctor who is less soft and cuddly and more sharp and spiky, and it's invigorating. Should we talk about the companions of the first Doctor? The original TARDIS team was made up of Ian, Barbara and Susan. And it was... Uh, almost um, uh, a nuclear family in a way. I mean, Ian and Barbara were the mother and father. Susan was the slightly wayward teenage daughter. And the Doctor was the irascible grandfather figure in a way. I was going to say grumpy old (laughs) git. But, But, uh, I mean, it was clearly designed to be... I mean, teachers, authority... Not authority figures, but, you know, figures... Or in a sense, authority figures, I suppose. But, you know, people that you would welcome into your home because teaching, uh, I suppose, I'm hoping it still is today, was a respected profession. Um, So you you saw that. And again, Ian, Ian, uh, Ian, like Stephen, and then later Ben, fulfills the the sort of the action hero uh, trope that you couldn't, you wouldn't necessarily get with Hartnell because clearly he's just too old to be doing sword fighting, uh, etc., and I think they tried to replicate that a little bit as the as the first three years wore on. But towards the end of it, they when you had Ben and Polly, who I don't think were a particularly good fit for the first Doctor. I think they were too young and too hip. You you sort of wondered why they were travelling with this, you know, this crazy old man. Uh, and I, I thought they were probably a better fit for Troughton. Uh, more, more than anything else. You also had Stephen and poor old Dodo. I mean, people complain about Clara's lack of character, but Dodo has certainly got no character. And of course, she's given the chop before she's given any, any time to develop anything, really. Hence the words, dead as a Dodo. The companions are also in conflict with the Hartnell Doctor, aren't they? Quite a bit about his actions and motives. Exactly. And I suppose that, that, that mirrors sort of our, our queries or, or concerns about his motives. Hmm. Um, I mean, you have... You have you have Ian, who's the, the the hero figure, and Stephen, who's I mean Stephen, remember walks out on the Doctor in the massacre, mirroring again what Clara's done in Kill the Moon, uh, and then of course he comes back, and we of course we expect Clara to come back as well, but the Doctor does take time to reflect upon that um, at the end in that that sort of very well known monologue that he gives, um, and we I would imagine that the, the Capaldi will um, do the same sort of thing. I mean, there's, I, I think there's a lot of a lot of things to marry up or match off with Capaldi and Hartnell in, in, in what you know both production teams did back then and are attempting to do now. And I'm expecting like the, the first Doctor, the Capaldi, will, will, will soften. But there was certainly you know conflict between motives and courses of action um, between sort of the first Doctor and, and, and Ian and, and, and Stephen, uh, more so than, say, Ben later on. I think Ben's exasperation of the Doctor was, I've, I'm stuck with this old geezer, why won't he do what I say? <laughs> And interesting about what you, the point he made about Stephen, I was listening to the end of Dalek Master Plan, and the end of it, the Doctor's clearly focused on the, the fate of the Daleks, mm. and Stephen really brings it back home to him, uh, the personal cost of um, of the victory. So, you know, Stephen laments Katarina and Brett and, and Sarah Kingdom, mm. where Doctor goes, oh, oh, yes. It's sort of like an afterthought. Well, it's again, it's the Doctor operating on a higher plane to the rest of us. I mean, he clearly sees the threat of the Daleks and, and, and the Time Destructor as being of 
you know, the, the, the deepest of concern and, and, and his number one overarching priority in that story. And I mean, Dave, uh, in his comments uh, before, his recorded comments before, is right. I mean, Dalek Master Plan is just that sweeping epic at the, almost at the center of uh, Hartnell's run. I mean, we all know production-wise why it was created, but um, it, it certainly is a story that has a lot to offer, especially in terms of, well, there's the competing viewpoints. I mean, as you said, there's Stephen saying, well, this is the horrendous cost of you defeating the Daleks. I mean, three good people have been killed who, who we've come to know. Well, and four with yeah. Brett Vion as well. Yes, exactly. Mm. So, I mean, and that, that sheets home to all of us, I suppose, that in, in, in conflicts like this, uh, people do suffer and people do sacrifice themselves and people do die for, for the greater good. Well, you know, the, it's it's like Danny uh, has this thing against the Doctor. He sees the Doctor as, as belonging to the officer class, has to make decisions that uh, operate at a different level to the normal run-of-the-mill soldiers uh, who actually have to conduct, you know, the operations that they're ordered to do so. So, I mean, you obviously Danny was... It, it seems to me that Danny Pink was asked to do something or asked to be involved in something that, that scarred him terribly, which led to him leaving the army. And uh, sim- and his dislike or disdain for the Doctor is because you can sense in the Doctor the same sort of attitude that he had to deal with whilst he was in the army. Now, while the Doctor isn't at, at this stage, um, uh, in, say in the Daleks' master plan, isn't a complete bastard, he... Has, I suppose he sees himself as having an obligation. He's a citizen of the universe, as he says. He has an obligation to what he perceives to be the greater good, and, and defeating the Daleks is is that greater good. And sadly, there are people who um, who, who who are pawns sacrificed in the greater battle. When listening and watching the Daleks' master plan, it is slightly long. Uh, mm. It could definitely do with a reduction in four or five episodes. I was watching episode two. And Trantis walking down this gangplank into the, the, the Galactic uh, Council. It felt like it was going on for like three minutes. He's just sort of <laughs> gracefully waving his arms in the air, running down the ramp. I mean, that's his highlights. Obviously, they had 12 episodes to pad out. But we're, we're, we're a different audience. We've, been, we've grown up with different storytelling types. I mean, it's a different mm. presentation than we, we have today. Yeah. Um, and uh, you, you look at something like the Web Planet, which the Web Planet is derided now, I suppose, to a, to a certain extent. But it's. Now, I've not seen it, so I'm going on my impressions from the book and what I've heard. But it's my impression that it is... it is, it is no, Groundbreaking is too strong a word, but it's adventurous in what it's trying to present to the audience. Yes. Other than the Doctor and his companions, there are no other humanoid characters. We are expected to, as an audience, get in sync with alien creatures and their thoughts and their motivations and their way of doing things. So, I mean, in asking that of the audience... The web planet is much more adventurous than anything else we've been served up, you know, in the new series or even in the latter stages, uh, middle and latter stages of, of the classic series. Um, so not only is it a, a different type of storytelling to what we're used to, but a different sort of presentation of story um, th- th- than what we uh, what we have become used to, uh, you know, now. And also, the the great thing about the Hartnell era was the vast array of characters you had the crew were interacting with. So, as you said on Vortus, they had a you know all these different characters. And look, I haven't watched it recently, but I do remember it being quite 
dull. It's meant to be digested in weekly chunks. That's what, what I've, I've discovered. In my case, probably monthly chunks. The Hartnell era had a great ensemble of characters in which the main characters interacted with. And more so than you would get these days, I think. I mean, looking at something like The Reign of Terror, you, you had a number of characters who the Doctor and, and, and his companions met. I mean, there's obviously the, the, the most famous one, I suppose, is, say, the Jailer. But even even you know on the way to Paris, the Doctor falls in with a gang of uh, of prisoners and, and and an overseer, and and there's a, there's a really interesting and entertaining interaction between all of that. I mean, slightly, I suppose, pantomimeish in, in a sense. But I mean, you you even given the limited sets and the limited limited production values and all that sort of thing, there's a a sense of a greater you know, world building at play uh, during the Hartnell Hartnell era. Mm. Um, I mean, you know, we, we, we're taken to, to the Far East or to Central Asia yep. in Marco Polo and, and we're introduced weekly to a different array of locations and, and, and characters all intertwining into this really epic... I mean, it, it deserves the title epic more than almost any other Doctor Who story, Marco Polo. It's actually beautifully written. I mean, Luca Rotti did a, did a wonderful job with, with, with creating a story out of you know the, the diaries that, that Marco Polo left to us. Mm. You don't see that as much... I mean, I suppose... Well, again, it's the way that the stories are presented to us in 45-minute chunks. And by necessity, we 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 have uh, you know a doctor and his companion, and a couple of you know main main characters who we sort of see the story through, or who, who are the protagonists or the antagonists, or uh, and give you know effectively there to, to feed the story and feed the feed lines to the doctor and sort of generate the story. But back in the sixties, you know, and particularly under under Hartnell, there was a more languid tone to the way the stories were un- unveiled. And yes, you know, the, the the pacing is off, the pacing is slow, but. Put yourself, I suppose, in the mindset of you know an eight-year-old or a ten-year-old in, in the '60s, watching you know this this TV uh, show in the in 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 the middle of winter or during the year, and you're offered uh, a vista, a universal-wide vista of different times and places and people, and it it is it, it there's look I mean. It's it's in a, in a sense it's it's sad that uh, there are missing episodes from the Hartnell run, but at least we we, we we can see a really you know representative sample of what they were trying to do the different production teams during those three years. When listening to Marco Polo on the CD, I noticed that the narration is particularly detailed. Where when I listen to say the Savages and Celestial Toymaker, the narration is quite light on. And I think the narration on Marco Polo really embellished the, the TV soundtrack as well. Yes. I mean, that can only serve to deepen the world building. I mean, you, hmm. I mean, if you're going to be investing in a seven-episode story like that, the writing needs to be able to immerse the audience. And, and, and the narration in that story undoubtedly helps. <laughs> before we move on to the, the, the last portion of this topic Mark um, we've talked a lot about the Doctor a male led character and we've talked a lot about Ian and Stephen what, what have, do we have anything to say about the depiction of women uh, during the Hartnell era is it uh, is it groundbreaking are women forced to uh, maintain their normal you know stereotypes or I mean is there something different going on I think in some ways they are maintaining a stereotype Barbara I mean that is a great example of a very strongly defined character and also helps that she was well acted where Susan is a teenager who was supposed to have mysterious powers 
and when she left she was quickly replaced by another teenager who was less mysterious or indeed unearthly when i watched the chase and and listened to subsequent stories without ian and barbara in particular i really did miss them uh but i also definitely did miss barbara because she was very very strong what's she representative of the times though in terms of the television that was being portrayed again probably like the doctor um she wasn't look you look at what um barbara is expected to do i mean she's obviously a teacher in 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 an era where you know you, you sort of had you know uh nurses who got married had to leave the profession and i think even here in australia i think there were female teachers who once they got married had to leave the profession and that only changed into the into the 70s so I mean that's shocking. To, I mean people who are, who've just come to the show in the new series and don't know what the times were like. I mean I, I would assume would be shocked by that sort of thing. But it's almost like the Dark Ages, isn't it? Now medieval. It, it is medieval. It, 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 it is medieval. I mean you you had half the population who weren't denied their full rights and who weren't allowed full full expression of their personalities and their intellects in the society around them that sort of trapped them in a box sometimes. It's staggering, isn't it? I mean, there are underlying reasons for that, of course. And, and, and you know, these days it's, it's, a, it's a different story where both yeah. parents are working, but we're off the track. But you look at Barbara, you look at the Aztecs. It's not Ian who's the living reincarnation of an Aztecian, Aztecian, Aztec god. It's Barbara. She's the one who is in conflict with the Doctor about changing history. And, and that match, again, we, we go back to, you know, uh, Capaldi and, and, and Coleman. But it's Clara, uh, you know, questioning the Doctor's actions. It's it's Barbara who ex- has, you know, tr- is in ancient Rome as a slave. As a slave, you are no better than the furniture in your owner's, in your owner's property. And as a female slave, well, you can just imagine the sort of thing that was gotten up to with female slaves. So for Barbara to come through that experience... You know, to be you know depicted in that experience and to come through it, just shows how, you know, I mean, she, her her reactions to certain you know disturbing events were human reactions, but she was strong enough to come through the other end of that, and her standing up to the Doctor in the Edge of Destruction is 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 the memorable moment in that two part serial, where you know she's basically she she's giving it giving it to the Doctor, tearing strips off him. And, you know, basically accusing him of being, you know, the cause of all the trouble that they're in. He refuses to believe them. I mean, it's 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 his fault, effectively. And she won't take his rubbish anymore. And, you know, you, you, you don't see Ian doing that. So whilst as the, I suppose, the Hartnell era and into the Troughton era, era, the role of the female companion became effectively a gaudy piece of eye candy on the doctor's arm... At least initially in the first year or year and a half, you had Barbara, a sort of no-nonsense. Watching Jacqueline Hill in that role is, is, is something that I urge a lot of our female listeners, especially the new series fans, go back and, 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 and see uh, uh, and watch stories that heavily feature her at the Aztecs, The Edge of Destruction. Uh, the Edge of Destruction, you'll see some very strange things going on, but you'll see a, a strong female character who... Um, could well, you know, in, in a way, like the like the first Doctor serves as a template for some of the later incarnations. Barbara Wright serves as a template for some of the stronger female characters who come later: Sarah Jane Smith, Ace, uh, and 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 now this this later version of uh, of uh, Clara. Um, we have to sort of. Uh, 
we have to touch on an undeniable fact that whenever the votes are taken on a you know rate your favorite doctor, Hartnell for many years has appeared at the lot in the lower rungs of the, the, the that voting. Is what what can we put that down to? That's a very good question, and what I'm trying to work out myself because if I want to watch a Doctor Who story, I usually plumb for say a Tom Baker, Peter Davison, Pertwee, Troughton. I really don't go back and watch many Hartnells. It wasn't until we started doing this topic that I've actually gone back and listened to a stack of stories, actually. I don't know if it's as, if it's the portrayal, or I, don't, I certainly don't think it's the acting, but when you sort of compare Hartnell, the actor, to Troughton, the actor, my personal opinion is Troughton is a much better character actor. There's a lot to get out of the first Doctor and Hartnell's portrayal. I don't know whether it's a type of storytelling doesn't suit uh, some people, it might be that the, the the first Doctor stories are seen as hard work to get through. If you were to suggest to a Doctor Who fan a Hartnell story, which one would you plumb for? Not simply because it's got Daleks in it, but I would suggest people look at Dalek Invasion of Earth. Simply, I think it's, well, I think it's a very strong story. Mean, you wouldn't watch it in, I don't advise watching it in one go. Because it, it, it is long and it, it is, I think, effectively a it can be repetitive, I suppose, in you know, being captured, escape, captured, escape, captured, escape. But I think if you're looking for uh, an entertaining story that isn't all light and froth, it is. It has dark themes. It has you know the destruction of civilization, human civilization, and it's got a real, I think, a real powerhouse performance from from Hartnell. And there is a reason why that clip, that famous clip where he farewells Susan was used in The Five Doctors because it's simply very moving. I think if people question Hartnell's, you know, performances, they're, they're, they're not paying him the due credit that he's, that he's due. Putting aside what you hear about the man and his, and his particular attitudes, I mean, and that's, that doesn't really factor in here. That, doesn't, that, should, that shouldn't count into, into it here. I think, as you say, he's a, he's, he's a very good character actor. He's a very good character actor who embraced the role and... Simply because so you know so few people I suppose, uh, particularly new series viewers, may have seen it. I think they will get a lot out of uh, out of watching that era. Not only are uh, you you'll get a different portrayal than what you've become used to, you'll get an entertaining portrayal. You'll get certainly of what a, a variety of of stories and story types, but also presentations. I mean, as you say, you know some some stories are presented in a, in a more adventurous way, like say the Reign of Terror, and then some stories are presented in in a more dramatic. Uh, an even grim way like and again you can't say it but say um the massacre and i think hartnell as the 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 lead actor in that brings brings a great a great deal that is appealing to the role at times he's tough at times he's affectionate at times he's humorous but it, it all comes up into a into a real complete package and there, again there is a reason why you know future actors who played the role did look back at Hartnell, did go back to their memories of Hartnell and did go back and revisit, you know, episodes to, to help key in their portrayal. I think he's been overshadowed by later Doctors, in particular, you know, Tom Baker and Pertwee, who are, you know, very strong in people's memories, especially when they were growing up in the 70s watching them. That's true, that's true. And I think some, some of it may be just simply a resistance to watching black and white television. It might be that as well. If I was to show somebody a Hartnell story, I'd probably cheat a bit and say... I'd either go for Time Meddler because it's fairly accessible, it's fairly short, but I think it shows a really 
a different contrast to what you said about Dalek Invasion of Earth. But the War Machines, I think you could show a new series viewer, I suppose it does sort of relate slightly to the modern series in terms of that sort of storytelling. Well, there's a more contemporary edge as, as much as a 40... Seven-year-old story can have a contemporary edge, but I think that shows Hartnell in a in a, in a pretty good light. Mm. It does it does surprise me though why he sort of rates at the bottom rung of the polls. I think he still rates Colin Baker. I'm struggling myself to find a reason why. I, 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 it's pretty easy to you know give a reason why you should watch Hartnell. It's it's hard to work out why he's he's not as popular. I, I if unless we know the demographic of the people who are voting in each of these polls. It's hard to really pinpoint why they why he rates so low. I don't think people. I mean, sometimes it might be just the fact that it's not people disliking Hartnell and his betrayal. It's just that they have other doctors who they like more. I think it's it, and we're not sort of saying it's one poll in particular. It's quite a number of polls. He's still at the bottom until Colin Baker turned up. And I suppose it's only with the the, the advent of videos and DVDs later that that his exposure to a wider audience. Because I mean, again, there were no no repeats in the seventies. And only you know one or two in the eighties, I think. So you know, unless you'd lived through the sixties, you didn't know who Hartnell was. Uh, otherwise, you'd have to rely on on, on novelizations and uh, to, to to help you sort of work out. And even then, that's an imperfect way of doing it, obviously. But even with that excuse now that everything is out there and everything's available, his positioning really hasn't changed, has it? It's always still at the bottom of the ranks. Is it the stories? It, it, look, it, it's hard to say. I suppose we can talk talk around it and talk around it. But at the end of the day, I mean, the numbers are undeniable. Um, but then you know the numbers aren't necess- aren't the truth, are they? I mean, there's any there's any number of uh, people might be put off by the idea that there's there's a black and white stories featuring an unhandsome elderly you know he's in his mid fifties but elderly looking man um, who we've sort of heard these stories about his attitudes in in real life. But I don't I don't don't think people should allow themselves to be coloured by that. I think people should you know take the time to dive into the Hartnell era. You know, watch the first two or three, three serials, and then come back and, and watch some of the later stuff, and 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 have a look at some of the, the more you know the contemporary story like the War Machines, or some of these landmark stories that introduce you know the different sort of storytelling types like uh, the Time Meddler, because there is a great deal of, there is a great deal on offer that I think is really entertaining. Clearly, Hartnell loved the role; he he, he absolutely loved it, and. If there's any skerrick of truth in uh, the docudrama from last year, he basically had to be dragged out, you know, unwillingly from the role. And you, from what you hear and what you read and what you see on TV, Capaldi is evincing the same sort of, you know, deep passion and love for the role. I think I think he's just absolutely loving it. It's a shame though Hartnell didn't get a better story to, to go out on, really. Just as an aside, do you think that they were... I mean, they obviously had a, the, the potential to get to remove uh, Hartnell in The Celestial Toymaker. And potentially The Savages as well. Exactly. So do you think they were just waiting for... Uh, they were bringing, you know, screwing their courage up or, or they were just looking for, you know, a particular story within which to, to write him out? And because... Uh, it, from what I understand, it it's not necessarily an afterthought. Afterthought, the regeneration at the end of Tenth Planet, um, but it does seem a little tacked on. There's no real build up to it. Is that right? Pretty much. I'm having a rest in episode three. I mean, basically because he was sick, and then oh, I've, yeah, this old body mind's wearing a bit thin, and and that and that's it. I think the only reason why he wasn't replaced in Celestial Toymaker because. 
somebody had issued the contracts out for uh, the next couple of months. So mm. his, uh, Hartnell's agent quickly signed them. But I think, obviously, the regeneration um, concept is a brilliant idea, and I'm really glad they went with that because I think having the celestial drawmaker turn up every time the Doctor's going to change is going to be quite annoying, especially being portrayed by different actors who are, whose appearance are going to be as inconsistent as the Doctor's. And uh, we, you obviously couldn't have white men portraying an Asian character in the 21st century. There no. Would, there would be a riot up and down the length and breadth of the land, I think. It's probably one of the many reasons why Marco Polo still hasn't been released yet. <laughs> Different times and places, Mark. Different times and places. Yes, exactly. exactly so right. just, just to sum up and, and tie a, a nice little bow in this particular discussion, uh, any thoughts on the legacy of Hartnell in terms of the series? I mean, a lot of people say that the series continuation is down to trout, and that is true to an extent, but without that original actor and template to work off, none of the other Doctors could have followed, really. He set the standard. What about you? So I think, Mark, that, that, that Hartnell's legacy to the show is its continued success that if the... I mean, we can all put down the show's popularity to, in a sense to Dalek Mania, but I think that Hartnell implanted in the minds of especially the young viewers this strange, impossible, irascible character who they carried with them through, you know, as, the, as they grew older and as their affections for the show deepened. And, you know, I mean, it is black and white television and the production values are, you know, what we would regard now unfairly as subpar. But it, it, when you... When you're watching Doctor Who, and especially classic series Doctor Who, you should always be going back for the breadth of, of ideas, the quality of the writing, and the portrayal of by the lead actor in the show. And in the Hartnell era and under Hartnell, you had all three of those more often than not. So um, in a sense, uh, Hartnell is the number one figure you know in, in a sense is the number one figure in in the show during that era and and later on he is as as someone once said the original you might say so robbie do you feel like dragging up well all i have to say to that mark is can you come around and zip me up <laughs> Yes, it's the return of our popular segment. I say popular because only one person tweeted about it. Drag from the archives where we plunder our fanzines of yesteryear. Let's start off with the first one. Again, from that uh, wonderful tome, DWB. Where would we have been without DWB? A truth teller. I don't think a magazine like DWB would be able to exist these days. It would have to be the, the most sub of subterranean Doctor Who fanzines, wouldn't it? If it was hosted on a, on the internet, it would have a, you know, it, it have a server somewhere in deepest, darkest Uzbekistan. What do they call it? Dark web? It would be like a dark web website. Well, that's probably same as some forums anyway. But anyway. It would be, yeah, be disseminating drugs and Doctor Who information at the same time. <laughs> Viagra and Doctor Who at the same time. Have I told you the story about how I almost came into possession of a whole box of Viagra? Tell us uh, more. No, that's, a, that's an uplifting story for another podcast. Yes, uh, I'm sure somebody got stiffed about that. Okay, so Doctor Who... Mark, Bull you had to drag it down, didn't you? I did, sorry. I did. So Doctor <laughs> Who Bulletin number 39 uh, in October 1986 screams the headline, Disaster! Only 5 million tune in for trial of a Time Lord Parts 1 and 2. Doctor Who's long-term prospects have been dealt a massive blow with the first audience figures released by Barb uh, being way below those expected for the new Saturday tea time slot. 
Only 4.9 viewers, or 10% of British households, tuned in for the first two episodes of season 23, some 3 million short of the uh, 8 million anticipated. Now, have you seen some of the uh, internet chatter over the recent ratings for Series 8? The same sort of hysteria that's uh, been played out on this front page? Yes, but only in some corners of fandom, who I think have an axe to grind whether it's an extra grind against Moffat or perhaps even an extra grind uh, that Capaldi isn't Matt Smith, but or even just an extra grind that these stories aren't up to scratch or what we expect. The uh, but I think fans are, I think fans today are smarter, more savvier. Uh, each each uh, each um, it's become a tradition on on Gallifrey base that some fine fellow uh, uploads the uh, the viewing figures for British television for a Saturday. And that we, we constantly see that Doctor Who is for the for the for the day anyway, at least in this series, is you know number three with a bullet for the day, and then of course the overnights are padded out with uh, the way that they do the ratings these days, and they look at you know online viewing and and, and, mm. and and repeats and stuff like that, and the overnights expand. You know they're getting to the point where it's they're increasing by fifty percent, seventy five percent. So the numbers overall are no real different to what we grew used to under uh, under Matt Smith. So. Uh, but yeah, I mean, there are people who, as I said before, have an axe to grind, and they uh, and to mix my metaphors, use the um, use the use the ratings to flog uh, uh, Stephen Moffat and, and Peter Capaldi, uh, and basically anyone who disagrees with them. You have to remember, back in the in the eighties, VCRs were starting to become commonplace. Time shifting wasn't counted towards final ratings, so there could have been an extra ten or eleven people watching Driver Time Lords Part One and Two that we don't know about. And and you see people making the false argument about you know Doctor Who now is is not as popular as it was back then. Um, It's it's apples and oranges comparison, and and, and people's lives are different, and and the viewing options now are are, are, are much more numerous than than what people had years and years ago. Uh, many years ago so I mean you effectively if you wanted to watch television sometimes you were just forced to watch something that you may, you may not otherwise wanted to have watched and I, yeah. I suppose that, that's probably during the, uh, the, the the ITV strike during season 17 where 16 million people crawled out of the woodwork to watch Doctor Who which was you know utterly utterly surprising I suppose but nowadays you know the overnight figures are, are lower than they have been uh, well since the show come back but as I said before uh, you, the way the, 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 the audience is counted now uh, ensures that you know this and it's not just for Doctor Who obviously but it's for every other TV show that Doctor Who is frequently uh, you know in the top 20 or 25 and it's you know frequently near the top rated drama for that week yeah. which uh, is remarkable I suppose the uh, DWB article concludes saying that it is clear that the much publicized 18 month rethink period imposed as a result of the hiatus appears to have done far more harm than good for the program. And subsequently, there can now be very little doubt at all that a completely new production team will be appointed for season 24 should the show be given the opportunity to prove itself. Now, they've got a little bit of a table here uh, of the top shows in 1986. So number one was EastEnders. Uh, at number 18 was The A-Team. Uh, at 68 was uh, Blue Peter. 69 was Doctor Who Episode 1. And at 72 was Scooby-Doo. So Scooby-Doo was nearly getting the same ratings as Trial of a Time Lord Part 1. That uh, Well, I mean, DWB is shown to be right that if you break people's viewing habits by taking the show off for a, an extended period than what they're otherwise used to, they won't come back. That's right, and especially when the management of the BBC were publicly slagging off the production team 
and not doing anything about changing them. Yeah, you had articles in you know major publications about what, what the hell was going on and all that sort of thing. Mm. So yeah, I mean the atmosphere at the time was not positive for, for the show, but uh, good old DWB for for uh, using it as a it's a flog J and T basically. <laughs> basically, they're saying you're out J and T season twenty four. You are out. Every issue nearly had J and T out. Uh, so what have you picked out there, Rob? Um, there's this uh, there's this letter here from a fine young gentleman, uh, a Chris Chibnall from. Is that Formby in uh, Merseyside? Yes. Hello, Chris, if you're listening. Uh, I wonder how Chris has kicked on in life. I don't know, actually. Don't know. Mm. Uh, anyway, uh, Chris writes, Whilst I can appreciate your opinions, is there really any point in continually slagging off JNT? I know 89% of fans want a new producer, but it's no use moaning about it because he's all we've got, so we might as well make the most of it. If you continually attack JNT, it only gives Michael Grade another excuse to axe the show. He can easily turn around and say... I've axed Doctor Who because the producers become boring and the fans agree with me. Triumphantly waving his copy of DWB. So what do we think about young Chibber's uh, comment there, Mark? I think he's trying to suggest that Doctor Who should appeal to a more broader church. And on that grace (laughs) note Uh, point... Oh, yes! Crunch the air, folks, with that. Love that one. DWB had a... A famous front page saying 89% of fans want a new producer. Uh, I think it was Ian Levine writing. <laughs> uh, 89% of Ian Levine wanted a new producer. <laughs> yes. Uh, mm. The other 11% didn't have an opinion. No. I suppose, what can you say to that? I mean, on, on the one hand, it's uh, it's assuming that uh, Grade knew what DWB was all about. Well, they kept sending him copies of it every week. Did they? <gasps> God. It, it, kept, it kept sending letters. I've enclosed the latest DWB. I've enclosed the latest DWB. Great, never bought a subscription to it because he was getting it for free every month. You know what? I wonder how much time Doctor Who took up for people like Michael Gray. Deciding that the future. <laughs> I mean, did they sit? Did he sit at his desk? You know, this sort of. Let's assume that he had this massive oaken desk, possibly made from the timbers of uh, mahogany. You know, ma- <laughs> made from the timbers of uh, Nelson's uh, flagship, the Victory, and uh, you know you, you have min- minions scurrying in, uh, blinking into the light from that sort of you know the, the corner offices, uh, you know, bowing and scraping and mm. dear Mister Grade, dear Mister Grade, dear Mister Grade. Mm. Um, do do you think that he spent more than? I wonder how much time they he and Powell sort of sat down and plotted to to, to get rid of the show. Was it? You know, let's have a meeting on Monday Monday afternoon after drinks, and we'll just work this out. Or was it a constant? Was it a constant thorn in their sides? The the, the show and what to do with it. It, it, it. I mean, I know you, you read you read the comments at that time, and you read the comments later on. And Grade has no good things to say about the show at all. Mm. So it, you know, whether it consumed a lot of his time, you, you couldn't imagine that it would. But it's just interesting to wonder, in the roundabout way that I've gotten to this point, how much time the people who are in charge really devoted to the show and and shaping and deciding its future. Well, according to the uh, J&T biography, the cancellation decision by Grade and Powell was reached quite quickly. It was pretty much, uh, these are the shows we're going to commission next year. Here is a list of shows we're not going to. Doctor Who was on that list, and that was pretty much it. And it wasn't until uh, the news leaked out and J&T got the press involved, and Doctor in Distress obviously uh, swung the public around as well. It did. Uh, it, it, it was a, <laughs> a, cue, uh, a clip. <laughs> no, no, no. I want to keep our remaining three listeners engaged. They're only listening so that they can hear a clip. Oh, all right. Here you go.
But interestingly, you asked that question, what was Michael Gray doing? Because DWB issue number 35 might have the answer for that. Oh! Next to the, the unfortunate byline of Robert Holmes dying, uh, it says... In June 1986, the month of Michael Grade. Michael Grade, the name that has conjured up visions of wielding axes hanging over Doctor Who for 15 months, has been displaying a side to his character previously unseen by fans of the series. It began last month when premiering the mobile Doctor Who exhibition in America. After it was completed, they offered Michael Grade a formal invitation to fly to Washington for the official opening. And just about to everybody's amazement, he accepted and joined Peter Davison at the opening ceremony. Well, enough on, on one point is that they didn't get Colin Baker to launch it. They got Peter Davison in. He was going off to America launching the Doctor Who exhibition, which is a really... Strange, strange state of affairs. Well, it might have been a free trip for him, really. He goes, yeah, I'll go to Washington and smile in front of the cameras. So hundreds of enthusiastic fans and news-hungry reporters descended on the transformed, continued overleaf, 48-foot trailer now housing exhibits previously seen on the Blackpool's Golden Mile. Producer John Nathan Turner was reportedly annoyed uh, at having to endure the second studio block of season 23 when he allegedly would have preferred to go to America hosting and and opening the mobile tour. Naturally, many questions were fired at Grade concerning the show's future, but he remained adamant that he had already voiced everything he wished to say and was waiting for the transmission of season 23. Now, when they say hundreds of fans and journalists, was it hundreds of fans and a journalist? Yeah, I don't know. It wasn't didn't sort of give any indication in terms of how many uh, were there. I mean, because Doctor Who was being shown on PBS, which not many people, I suppose. My impression is that it's not viewed by, you know, a great yeah. many people mm. and I can't see I, I mean I, I just can't see any any journalists of any note well entertainment journalists who aren't really journalists anyway um, would possibly have followed the caravan of, uh, of courage <laughs> caravan of love caravan of who love no it's just interesting to see I mean the, the, the article uh, mentions hundreds of fans and journalists so maybe there was a you know a few a few journalists in tow. It concludes by saying, in short, he had nothing to add to previous comments, but the fact that he actually took a whole day off from his hectic schedule to attend a Doctor Who event must surely say something for his personal opinion of the show. I just think that he wanted a free holiday and Washington was uh, on the uh, air ticket and there he went. There he went. I mean, I did read, there's an interview with Colin Baker a while back, maybe in Doctor Who magazine, where... Apparently, on the plane over there, Michael Grade and Peter Davison were sitting on the, you know, next to each other, and uh, uh, Mr. Grade sort of confessed to Davison about his real aims for Doctor Who and why he sort of was cancelling it. And uh, Colin Baker, I, I think, was saying that the um, Grade's ire was squarely uh, focused towards JNT, not the program itself. But um, believe that or not, I suppose. Look, it's it's uh, as with a lot of these things. I mean, it, it, this is entertaining reading, but it's so much water under the bridge, isn't it? I mean, it, it, it's all about a, pers- a perspective because eleven years ago, uh, this this sort of stuff would have fired fans up. But eleven years later, um, we're all in a state of relative contentment, aren't we? Right until you know Michael Gray comes back to the BBC and cans the show again. Anything else caught your fancy there, Rob? Well, um, a double entendre always uh, catches my uh, fancy, Mark, and uh, we've got uh, in uh, an issue of DWB a uh, just a short piece-headed uh, console cock-up. Now, last-minute script revisions are being made. Mark, this is a serious subject. Do not laugh when I say console, okay? I just, yeah, it's just your just fi- for the your audience, once again, yeah. console cock-up. Now, 
Last-minute script revisions are being made to season 23's third story to accommodate for a minor design problem. None of the TARDIS set interiors survived the long break in recording, not even the console. Hence the need for a totally new set for the ship's interior, which is not seen until story three. The designer of the story, Dina Walker, working on the series for the first time, contacted the production office some time back to request reference photographs of the TARDIS interior. With no stills readily to hand, the designer was sent instead a past story on videotape to watch. With the budget for story three, a tight premium due to the overspending on stories one and two, the designer justifiably felt proud of her efforts to get the sets done within her tightening limits. But there was consternation from the production office when the set was unveiled for approval, complete with the old console. Unable to spend further on a redesign slash rebuild, the problem will be to debut Melanie, a future history companion of the Doctor, with a past history console. What the hell is that about? Um, <laughs> I don't know. That is, that's the only time I've ever heard that particular story. Headed console cock up. I reckon that story originated from the, the BBC bar. Basically, I think somebody said, oh, I've scratched the Tyler's console today. And after a few many drinks and a few more people getting involved in the conversation, it's obviously blown out to all proportion. It's got back to Ian and Ian's fed it back to Gary. And 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 there you have it. They have a, f- a fully fledged story springing fully formed from the brow of some insider. Actually, what's really taking my eye on that page, Mark, is I draw your eye to the bottom of the fourth column. I, what issue is this again? DWB 35 and 37. Uh, and what page is this? Uh, I've lost There's count. No pa- oh, page three. Page, page three. three, yeah. Uh, look, people who own <laughs> copies, I, I don't know. I'm looking at Brian Blessed. <laughs> Look, it must be because it's almost 11 o'clock. 11 o'clock at night. Brian Blessed has the biggest grin. He's playing, apparently, according to the caption here, in uh, LWT's new version of uh, Treasure Island. He is Long John Silver. And he is grinning like the Cheshire cat Hmm. from ear to ear. It's, It's positively manic. It, it, it's it's bizarre. It's bizarre. But that that's actually that's something else that's caught caught my eye. I actually thought you were going to bring up the Starburst snubbed uh, article on the same page to to quickly go over it. Basically, Starburst was supposed to have a season twenty three exclusive interview. Uh, J and T pulled that interview, so they were short of a couple of pages uh, of that issue of Starburst. So they thought, what can we fill it with? Mm. We might discuss it on a future podcast with a special guest, maybe. Maybe, maybe. A returning special guest, maybe. Yes, maybe. We'll, we'll keep that one till then. So I think you've you've dragged me right through the archives uh, for this episode, Mark. There's one more. Oh, there's one more. Okay, one more. A Richard Molesworth. That name is familiar. DVD production text extraordinaire, author of the uh, Fantastic Missing episode, Time Wiped. Editions one and two, and hopefully uh, a third edition, just very quietly being worked on as we speak. Perhaps a very hefty third edition. Hopefully, Hope, hopefully. Richard Molesworth writes, "Hello, Richard. If you're listening, up till about five minutes ago, I was prepared to say that the general decline of Doctor Who was due to Eric Sayward and none other. It saddens me to say I was wrong. I no longer care what John Eller and any other JNT supporter say. JNT has single-handedly ruined the show, aided and abetted by Eric Sayward." I was looking forward to season 23, but now. 14 episodes, Bonnie Langford and JNT as a producer. I ask myself, is it worth it? 
one glance at the photo of Colin Baker and Bonnie Langford skipping hand in hand through the gardens of BBC TV Centre leaves me in no doubt, Doctor Who is past saving. Strong words. Various, I'm, I'm just tr- struggling to work out how JNT could single-handedly ruin the show in concert with Sayward, but moving moving past that <laughs> apparent contradiction. Um, yes, there were some very interesting photos. I mean, I don't know what, the, really. I mean, there was Colin wearing a beard, for, for, for goodness sake, in a harness. There was no doubt very badly handling the crown jewels up there with 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 Bonnie dressed. I think she was dressed as a pixie or some some ridiculous nonsense like that. Dressed as Peter Pan, I believe it was. Uh, at the time, she was in a production of Peter Pan, and they thought, "What a great idea! Get Bonnie Langford on in the sky on these yeah. on what are they called Kirby wires, yes, and get Colin Baker, who's had a few steak and kidney pies." And there was no painting uh, out those wires, no, unfortunately. Get, so get the block and tackle out for Colin. And is the, I, I remember that picture because the, that was heavily featured in an issue of DWB but the, the image of them skipping hand in hand down a garden something I do remember there's a picture I think Bonnie Langford is throwing leaves at Colin Baker uh, probably trying to promote two of the vervoids I don't know I, I vaguely remember the pictures I'm sure they're around somewhere but uh, I've probably blanked them although I think one of the then was used as a cover for Doctor Who magazine, I think, in the lead up to season twenty three. Anyway, truly, were those times the the dark times, weren't they? I mean, it's just it's beyond beyond belief that anyone, particularly J and T, would think that those sort of images would do anything for the show. I mean, who who is that appealing to? It's the tabloid English press. I think what a jolly up wheeze watching Bonnie Langford throwing leaves at Colin Baker <laughs> dressed in a clown suit. It's ridiculous. Who would want to watch a show that has the two leads doing that? It, 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 it just boggles my tiny mind. I don't understand. I don't understand. No wonder it was ratings disaster. You know, DWB was hardly likely to get any letters other than the ones that they did with regards to, you know, the ratings disaster. The show undoubtedly experienced. I mean, the drop-off was extraordinary. And, you know, for the way the show was treated, fully deserved. And the way the show treated the audience was, you know, fully deserved. Or the production the people in charge. Oh, yeah. I mean, why would you want to hang around and watch a show like that? Uh, watch a show that you know where the BBC has no faith in it and and took it off the air and is now presenting this. Yeah. What would you want to watch? You'd go and watch something else. That's right. With no perceived changes. I mean, Colin Baker is still in that bloody awful costume. The production team that they were roundly criticising are still in place. Nothing's changed apart from a trial theme, which you know is just falling apart at the seams, anyways. It's a, and that's a pale, pathetic nod to the war games as, uh, as well. I mean, yeah. the doctor's been on trial before. Let's just echo that. As I mean, yeah. it's just a lack of. I mean, they had eighteen months to come up with a storyline, and they come up with with you know something inspired by a Christmas Carol. Yeah. Well, you know, let's no, no, not the Matt Smith Christmas Carol people, but the you know the the Charles Dickens you may have heard of him is in series one. Um, it just it just it boggles the mind. You, you you don't you don't understand you don't understand how how it could be how it could possibly be. Bit of a downer about that. Well, you know, it, like I said, it was the dark times. There was no there was no light, and the light that was coming was a train. So just you know, cop that. All I could say. Oh, well, we hope you've enjoyed that uh, trip down memory lane. A bit deflated, actually. But uh, if you've got any fanzines you want us to talk about or any interesting bits of uh, fanzine lore from yesteryear, please send them through at 42 gmail.com. And I think the next time we do drag from the archives, we'll, uh, uh, a friend of ours has dropped off a whole pile of Victorian and uh, New South Wales fanzines, so we'll be mixing up with a bit of DWB goodness as well, because why not? Why not, indeed.
So thank you everyone for downloading and listening to our latest episode. We hope you enjoyed it. I certainly enjoyed uh, getting behind the mics again, Rob. So thank you for that. No, thank you, Mark. I particularly enjoyed Brian Blessed. Yes, I'll get the scan up on the blog uh, somehow. Uh, before we go, Rob, we want to plug something, don't we? Uh, we certainly do, Mark. We certainly do. We're going to be plugging a Doctor Who fan anthology called Seasons of War, which is a collection of short stories detailing the adventures of the War Doctor as depicted by John Hurt in Day of the Doctor. The anthology will be available in ebook, paperback, and in a special deluxe edition, with all proceeds going to Caldwell Children, which can be found at www.caldwellchildren.com, which is a charity that offers family support services for families with children who have physical and learning difficulties such as autism and epilepsy. Caldwell helps in the home or in the hospital, providing practical and emotional support at times of crisis for families whose children are suffering from illnesses. Now, the editor, Declan May, has pulled together a really stellar cast of contributors, uh, featuring writers such as Jenny Colgan, Paul Mars, George Mann, David McKinty, Jim Mortimer, Australia's own Kate Orman, Lance Parkin, John Peel, Gary Russell, Andrew Smith and Matthew Sweet. And on the fan side of things, there's also contributions from writers such as J.R. Southall, Matthew Sylvester, Daniel Whelans, uh, Matt Barber, Eva Burrows, Amy Candle, and just a host of uh, other really great fan writers as well. Now, for those of you interested in contributing to this worthy cause and picking up a copy of Seasons of War... You can go to our blog and have a look at the website address for Caldwell Children and also for the Just Giving page where you can make your donation and uh, it also advises you how to obtain a copy of the book itself. So once again, Seasons of War, an anthology written by fans, for fans, for a worthy cause. Mark and I are fully behind this collection and we hope our listeners give consideration to supporting it as well. And the Facebook page is Seasons of War Unofficial Doctor Who Charity Anthology. And uh, to sign off, I've been Dodo. And I wish I was Brian Blessed. Bye-bye. You've been listening to another episode of 42 to Doomsday, the Doctor Who podcast hosted by Robert Mark. You can contact us on our Twitter account at 42 to Doomsday. You can email us at our Gmail account, 42 to Doomsday at gmail.com. Facebook us at facebook.com forward slash 42 to Doomsday. Until we meet again, thank you very much for listening. We'll see you soon.